Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our visitors again. It's great to see you all here this morning. Please take your Bible and find Psalm 93. Psalm 93 this morning. We are in the beginning of a unknown length of an expository series of the Psalms. And so, after finishing the book of James, I was led to present a series in the Psalms. Psalm 93. The message is entitled, The Sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. Last Sunday, uh, if you were here last Sunday, you would you notice I wasn't preaching last weekend. And it was because I had my monthly Air Force Reserve duty. And this particular weekend, I was invited to address a group of about 300 airmen in a big theater. And the purpose of this gathering was for the group commander, a full bird colonel, to present awards to those whom have excelled in the unit, but also just to have time to update the uh, unit on the mission and the well-being and direction of the unit. While not necessary, the chaplain is given a few minutes to provide a word of encouragement. And since this is a mandatory event, not a voluntary religious one, I need to exercise caution. I need to resist the burning urge within my bones to preach the gospel. I need to resist the natural tendency I have to start preaching when I have a captive audience. If I get too evangelistic or too spiritual or too Christian, then I run the risk of discipline at worst. Or I risk Uh, not getting invited back, which also kind of hurts. At the same time, I'm not a self-help guru either. I didn't go to school to approach podiums so that I could spout out some psychobabble or give some kind of secular motivational talk. So here's what I normally do when I have these opportunities. I take them because they, it exposes me. And later on in the hallway, I might have an opportunity to have a you know, sidebar chat, which is where real ministry occurs. So what I do is this. I, I find a quote from a notable, famous leader in American history that displayed superior leadership. And... The quote normally provides a universal moral application. From there, I can find a way to tie in some general spiritual lesson, right? Because our morality comes from our maker, right? And this is safe because no military member would disagree with the words spoken or written by men like General Patton. Or General MacArthur. Or if those names mean nothing to you, how about Abraham Lincoln? 
or even General George Washington himself, who spoke frequently and openly about worship and God. So it's quite easy to find quotes like that that overflow from a theistic worldview, not an atheistic worldview, as some may lead you to believe. After all, it was John Adams who said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. So I can stand up in front of the most liberal colonels and say that. They're not going to argue with me. So last week, what I did, I I, I selected a quote from General Washington. It went like this. Liberty itself will find in such a government with powers properly distributed and adjusted its surest guardian of liberty. Now, why would I stand before 300 U.S. airmen and read that particular quote at that particular time? Well, it's because I needed a non-religious springboard to build a bridge to a universal, ethical, moral message to a group of Washingtonians at a time when our government is about to be adjusted. See where I'm going with this? I continued my address by reminding them of the history that will take place in just five days from now. Which is what? The inauguration. I felt that it was good to broach that subject, given that my audience uh, were citizen airmen living in this very liberal state. On the one hand, many of them are UW students. Some of them work a nine-to-five job, like many of you being influenced by all kinds of theories. But on the other hand, all of them were or are U.S. armed force members, servicemen and women. And I remembered them of the oath they swore. Every single serviceman swears to obey the President of the United States without qualification. So I implored them, That time for debate and time for protesting, time for campaigning is long gone. I said this, these words exactly. Mr. Donald Trump will be your next president. And even if you are against him, be thankful that the powers that be are being adjusted every four to eight years as General Washington said it must be for the sake of your liberty. You could hear a pen drop in that room. But every time I step down from that podium, an opportunity for ministry always arises. And so I implore you with the same statement. We live in a time that's somewhat divisive, you know, really edgy. People are still whining and complaining and protesting about what's unfolding. But I'm going to go a step further with you this morning because this is a religious service. Not only should you as obedient citizens, which is biblical to obey the government, 
Not only should you be thankful that we still live in a country uh, where the powers that be are always being adjusted, people are being moved around, so right, one person just doesn't take over. That's, that's the general idea, right? Not only should you be thankful of that, even though your particular candidate did not win the election, but you also must recognize as Christians that God was behind the whole thing. The hand of God has not been taken off of human history, including recent American history. So this morning, in light of what's going on around us, and perhaps in light of what's going on in your personal life right now, I want to speak to you from Psalm 93 about the supreme, sovereign reign of our everlasting living God. One theologian defines God's sovereignty in this way. God does as he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, always as he wants. 18th century preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards called the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that noble doctrine. This doctrine is grand and marvelous to those who know God. But to those who are unknown by God, to those who remain in sin, to those outside the new and better covenant, this doctrine is terrible. So my friends, if you already begin to feel yourself resisting the message, or if by the end you are not compelled to stand in awe of God, then you have to ask yourself if you have spiritual eyes to see the truth. Psalm 93 is an enthronement psalm. Remember, a couple weeks ago, I I explained how there are different categories of psalms. I'm not going to list them all right now for the sake of time, but this is an enthronement psalm, which demands that you, the reader or hearer, respond with nothing less than willful subjection and recognition of God's sovereign rule. So with that in mind... I'm going to ask you to stand one more time in honor and in reverence of God's word. Let's read Psalm 93. He who has an ear, let him hear the words of the psalmist. Psalm 93. The subtitle is The Majesty of the Lord. The Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Please be seated. I want to give you a general overview of this psalm before we explain it. The first two verses stand together. They declare the sovereign reign of God. Then verses 3 and 4 cluster together. They declare the sinful rebellion of men. 
And then finally, verse 5 declares the sure revelation of God. Let's look at the sovereign reign of God in verses 1 and 2. This is the unmistakable central theme. It cannot be missed. The first three words are the Lord reigns. Yahweh reigns. It is the tetragrammaton, which the Hebrew scholars call. It's the covenant name of God. The I am. He is the God of heaven and earth. And this is the most foundational truth in all the world. That Yahweh reigns. This is what undergirds everything. That God exists and he controls everything for the honor of his own name. This is also the ultimate reality. It's where our theology starts. God is and he reigns. The message of God's gospel begins with God's right to rule over his created earth and all its inhabitants. It always must begin, the gospel always must begin with who God is. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. So we see this theme in Scripture reoccurring. The Lord reigns means that he has absolute authority over his creation. And he uses and exercises that authority every moment, every day, for all time. He reigns exclusively. He does not share his throne with another. There's no Senate in heaven. There's no House of Representatives to which he's accountable to. His authority is not bound nor affected by human will or by heavenly counsel, for that matter. He also reigns continually. This is in the present tense. It does not say he has or will reign. He reigns now and his reign will never cease. He reigns actively. In other words, God is not passively ruling. He's not sitting on the sidelines, observing all that comes to pass as a deist would have you believe. He has ordained the outcome and the means by which we observe the outcome of everything. He reigns absolutely, meaning that there are, he has no boundaries, he has no jurisdictions. There's no qualifiers or limits to his sovereignty. The psalmist says that he reigns majestically. Look at the second part of verse 1. It says he is clothed with majesty. This word speaks of regal splendor. It speaks of God's excellence. How about Exodus 15:7, Which says, and in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. Isaiah 2.10 Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Yahweh also reigns powerfully. All that he chooses to do, he does because he is able. Second line of verse 1. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. 
What does that mean? That God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There can be no resistance to his sovereignty. No matter what men may try to do, no matter what men may try to create, no matter what plan they devise, it's powerless. Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Psalm 107, 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Yahweh also reigns immutably. Immutably. Meaning that he never changes. Third line of verse 1. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. That is to say that all that God has done, all that he has done uh, to establish his creation, the laws of nature, the laws of morality are set. They don't change. The laws of morality do not change. One commentator said this, Nothing is firmer than the order of creation, and yet God, listen to this, hangs the earth upon nothing. Think about that. The laws of nature are fixed, set in stone. They don't change. It is firmer than anything under the sun, yet it hangs on nothing. All that God has ordained and predestined and elected before the foundation of the world will not be altered. That's what we mean by his reign is immutable. God has no plan B. He has no contingency plan and no other alternative outcome to consider compared to us, right? Some of us who love to plan. We love to plan down to the minute detail. And we write down, if this happens, we're going to do this. If that happens, we're going to go do that. In the military, that was an essential part of our operations order. If we don't come back, here's what you're going to do. God needs no contingency plan. Everything he has planned is fixed and set in stone. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations... He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Now, at this point in this discussion, many might frantically object by asking this. Does this mean my prayers mean nothing? If everything is set and fixed, everything that that happens got ordained and it's not going to change, then why pray? Does this mean I'm not responsible? Of course not. You are commanded to pray. You are definitely commanded to obey Christ. So here's how these doctrines reconcile. Prayer and obedience is the means by which his rule is carried out. God has ordained the end, 
but he has also ordained the means to the end. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. True. Can't argue against it. Clear as day. Yet how are they going to hear if the preacher doesn't go? You see, the preaching is the means by which God brings his elect to himself. His reign is immutable. Also, Yahweh reigns eternally. Look at verse 2. Your throne is established from old. Now, what is a throne? I think that deserves some attention because we have no clue what it's like to have a throne in our country, right? We have no clue what it's like to have a monarchy. In fact, our country was founded on rebellion against the king. So all, we've, all we know of thrones is what we've read in elementary school or seen on TV, right? So what should come to mind when you think of God's throne? Well, again, I have great news. The scripture is sufficient. We don't have to bicker about it. We don't have to theologize. We don't have to have an opinion. Turn to Revelation 4. Revelation 4. Whenever you hear about God's throne or picture God's throne, Revelation 4 is all we need. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. And a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Like an emerald in appearance. See how majestic this is? Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. Clothed in white garments. And golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning around the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes and around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. 
And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. How does that radically differ from a human throne. So when you think the throne of your God, you don't think like King Arthur. With a weak, mild, wimpy man giving orders. You think of a majestic, eternal being who speaks and everything you see came to be. And also he sustains it by the word of his power. When you walk into his throne room, you see a majestic heavenly sight. And by the way, they're not going around jabbering. They're on their faces. And all they could say is holy, holy, holy. Honor and glory to your name. That's God's throne. The throne is eternal. So as we think about the implications of these truths, which are plenty, I want to give you a few to consider. First, I want you to know that presiding in heaven above is one exclusive, majestic, omnipotent God who is, who was, and who will be forever. Second, he is ushering the affairs of all aspects of human history including the very specifics of your own life. There are no random events that are taking place. Remember uh, Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Wrap your brain around that. Verse 9. The, man, uh, the mind of a man plans his way, but you know this one. The Lord, what? Directs his steps. Verse 33, my favorite. The lot or the dice is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That blew my mind the first time I read that. And so I would exhort you to commit that verse to memory. Whenever you hear of a decision that you don't like or you disagree with, or if there's a decision that you have in your life that discourages you or even angers you, remember that that decision was from God. And to respond with rejection and discontentment is this. Listen up. A form of unbelief. Proverbs 19.1 Many, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Proverbs 21.1. I've quoted this verse in an invocation before. To humble commanding officers. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Oh, that's a humbling verse, isn't it? 
even an unsaved king, is not off limits to the sovereign decree of our God. With all his mighty armies and chariots and weapons, God can turn him whatever direction he wants. Thirdly, the third implication to these truths, knowing and accepting the doctrine of God's sovereign rule over his creation should produce in your heart a growing vertical humility. Vertical humility. I'm not talking about humility towards a fellow man. Forget about that for right now. Usually when we hear of humility, all we do is think about being nice to our friends, right? That's biblical and that's important. But what's far more important is your humility before God. In your every moment thinking, in your conduct behind closed doors, and in the intentions of your heart. You could portray a humble and low and gentle spirit outwardly, but inwardly be the most arrogant, stuck-up, self-centered person on the planet. So will you allow Psalm 93 to humble you right now? Will you allow it to crush every ounce of spiritual pride within your soul? Because if you don't, you will fail to recognize the sovereign rule of God in your personal life. And you will become a practical atheist. Which is someone who lives with the mindset that there is no God in charge of me. Let us all acknowledge God's right to rule as an eternal sovereign king who reigns in splendor. Let us humble ourselves before the throne and submit to whatever happens in our personal affairs, knowing fully well that God is directly causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Amen? Back to Psalm 93. What we've seen so far is the sovereign reign of God. Now, second, notice the sinful rebellion of men. Verses 3 and 4. Now, this is the doctrine that's hard. Verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift their pounding waves. Notice that the psalmist repeats himself three times. And he does this to make a point. He writes in the superlative, the superlative, which is to say good, better, best. So with each phrase, he adds greater intensity and builds on the former. So if you look again more closely, the floods have lifted up, past tense. Oh, Lord, the floods have lifted up their voices, past tense. The floods lift up their pounding waves, present tense. Now, what are these floods and waves? I already give you a clue. Do they refer to the literal physical creation? Maybe at first glance you might think so, and some interpreters might take that position. But if you keep in mind the genre, which is Hebrew poetry... What we see here is symbolism. The floods here represent chaos, restlessness, disorder among the nations. In other words, wicked, sinful, rebellious mankind. 
Listen to Isaiah 17, verses 12 and 13. Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas. And the rumbling of the nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble like the rumbling of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee. Revelation 13. In the last days, John says, a beast who is the Antichrist, the devil's Superman, will come up out of the sea. It's not talking about the literal sea. It's representing the chaos of the nations. So the context, both the broad and narrow, reveals very vividly what the psalmist is saying here in verse 3. Mankind, like the erratic, chaotic, restless seas, continually rise up against their king. But more than that, more than that, just like living lawless, deranged, turbulent lives, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 4, more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. So the symbolism continues to build. We're working towards a crescendo, a big climactic effect. Remember the song we just sang, The Power of the Cross? Torn by sinful men, torn and beating then, nailed to a cross of wood. See, do you hear the music get more loud and, and, the, and the lyrics get more intense? And the crescendo is this, the power of the cross, right? Do you guys notice that? That's what we see here. We see the text is building into an intense crescendo. Listen, the floods have lifted up. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their pounding waves more than that of the many waters, more than the mighty breakers of the sea. Here comes the crescendo. The Lord God is mighty. The Lord God is mighty. He cannot be moved. He cannot be moved from his throne. He will not alter his plans. His counsel does not change nor fail. Yahweh is mighty. Is that how you would explain your God? As mighty? The pounding waves of the sea and the mighty breakers of the sea over time, they... They begin to erode the seashore and may break the rocks up a little bit as they crash onto the, the, the rocky shore. But the, the steady stream of sinful men will never begin to usurp the will of the Lord. You heard Psalm 2 exposited last week, correct? So this will sound familiar. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 4. Why are the nations in an uproar, and why are the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And how does God respond? He who sits in the heaven laughs... 
He doesn't just laugh. He scoffs at them. The Lord scoffs at them. He points to them and laughs and taunts them. He makes fun of them for trying to go against the Lord's counsel. It's as if God is saying, you puny little men, would you dare to resist my rule? You would resist me? You would refuse my counsel? You would condescend to believe that you have the power to chart your own course? You feeble men would seek to overthrow me? You confused men would stoop to think that my counsel will falter? What a joke. You see it. Many mock us. Many mock the scripture. Many mock Christ. But who's really doing the mocking? Understand it's God who is mocking them. They will not stand. He will. Now we arrive to the last verse in Psalm 93, which is the sure revelation of God. He says, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house. And so the picture here is of the people of God coming into the house of worship, understanding that the Lord reigns. They desire not to be numbered among the pagan unbelievers who are the floods in verses 3 and 4. They come into the house of the Lord knowing that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Notice again in verse 5, it says, Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Testimonies is just a synonym for the word of God. And the psalmist declares that it is fully confirmed. Meaning what? Meaning that it is fixed. It is unalterable. The effect the word of God has on God's people is simply this. Holiness. Which is apartness. Sacredness, separate from defilements. That's what the ministry of the word does. It produces holiness in the people of God forever. And I'll look at that last phrase in this enthronement psalm. Yahweh, O Lord, forevermore. Forevermore. The psalmist is saying that it is only through the regular singing, reading, teaching, preaching of God's fully confirmed testimonies, his revealed word, will produce that which is eternal. Let me say that again. Only through the regular singing, reading, teaching, and preaching of God's word will produce that which is eternal. Everything else is fluff. Everything else is optional. Everything else is preferential, disposable, and unnecessary. So let us train and retrain our minds to walk in these doors every Lord's day, craving and expecting nothing more or less than to hear of the testimonies of God. 
Let's do away with consumerism. The idea that church exists to serve my needs. That's sinful. It's evil. The scripture paints the picture of a church where the members understand that they are given spiritual gifts to serve one another. You're only going to know that if you are hearing the testimonies of God. Let's do away with sugar-coated messages. Messages. Then neglect these texts and produce the opposite of holy Christians. Let's do away with lightly salted programs. The programs that exist just for the sake of existing. The programs that do not seek to Share God's testimonies. Let's do away and reject fleshly sanctioned church growth initiatives as they will never produce holiness. The only thing that will for certain produce holiness in this house is if the king's testimonies are known, and if we subject ourselves to a sovereign reign. So we must, we must rest and rejoice with this truth. Yahweh is king over heaven and earth. Therefore, we must repent from spiritual pride vertically. We must humbly bow down to our king's will. You know what the king's will is? Whatever's happening right now. We need to come to this holy place of worship, hungering for his word forevermore. Now, how does this message clash with your thinking today? Do you view God as a holy, eternal, majestic, sovereign ruler. That's where your theology must start. If any other thing is your foundation for your faith in God, you're on a shaky foundation. So as, as I beg you to meditate on what was just preached... I'm going to ask you to begin preparing your heart to partake of the Lord's Supper. What an appropriate and wonderful text to hear right before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Rightly viewing him. Rightly humbling yourself. So, at SVBC, we believe that this is a holy ordinance offered to genuine believers in Christ who are living holy, repentant lives before God and men. At SVBC, we also believe that, that the elements that you see here in front of me are merely symbols intended to remind us of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Salvation is not provided through these elements. Christ is not in or around or among the elements. The biblical teaching is that they 
are given to us as a tangible reminder of Christ's violent death on our behalf. And so as the men prepare to come and dispense the elements, and as Daniel approaches the platform to play an instrumental piece for us, I exhort you all at this time to examine yourself before God and think how the Spirit will illuminate the truth of Psalm 93 to your mind.